All right, everybody, thank you and welcome back to this episode of Close Quarter Dad. Today I'm on with, uh, in this episode, with my friend Joe Templin. And I'm going to have him talk a little bit about the uh, work that he does that's very unique uh, in helping people to achieve their goals, to acquire excellence in all different areas of their life. But Joe has some really unique stories as a fellow father, um, but also as a martial artist and uh, ultra marathon runner. Uh, just a, there's a long list of incredible stuff that we're going to step into. Welcome to the Close Quarter Dad podcast. Discussions about raising your kids with confidence, safety, and resilience. I'm your host, Adam Mitchell, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Joe, I want to hear, when I read in your bio, that you've got this, that you, you developed as a young man an unhealthy resistance to authority, and that really appeals to me. So let's have that as our starting point. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I don't know if it's a, an unhealthy resistance or a healthy. Did disrespect. I say unhealthy? I'm sorry. Well, yeah, I re- you know that was my. If that you look at healthy how, disrespect, you're, that was my mistake. My mistake. <laughs> it, it, it leads to I like some good disrespect. laughter. That's bad. And at times it might be slightly <laughs> unhealthy because, you know, as I think I'm John projecting Camp because said, my, my mine was unhealthy. <laughs> well, you know, the authority song was probably written about me as a young man. You know, I fight authority and authority always wins. <laughs> but if you look at my parents, so I'm one of six kids. I'm the second son. So, of course, I have second son syndrome. And that explains a lot about who I am and there why I'm like yep. the way yep. that I am. But my mom grew up on a farm, too. She's the youngest of seven kids. Mm. And she was a nun. Wow. She went in and out of the convent multiple times, even giving the ring back to my father twice. Uh, before ultimately coming out and having six of us. My father was the first person in his family to go to college, and he started college in 1958 right after Sputnik because of the investment that the government was making at that point. My dad was an ROTC, Army Infantry. So my dad got commissioned in the infantry, and three months later was Bay of Pigs. So then he ran his consulting firm. So, you know, I grew up with these two influences where I was told to respect authority, but always question it, where you look out for other people, but you keep your nose out of their business, where you take care of yourself so that you can take care of others. And that sort of thesis has remained with me through my entire life. And hopefully I can pass that concept down to my children too. I want to take a step back into um, your father, because that sounds like some, he, he was faced with a lot of very interesting choices. It sounds like the experience of your mother going in and out of convent, Mm -hmm. probably facing a lot of uh, spiritual questions internally for herself, which of course is going to be, is going to be projected onto her husband uh, but then also military, and then you went on to saying that he had his own business. Can you can can we step into that story a little bit? Because he sounds like a heck of a guy. Sure. Yeah, he, he is. And, um, you know, my dad was gone a lot when I was growing up because he of his consulting firm and all that. But he's now 81, almost 82 years old. He retired at 80 because of COVID. And um, he's still very active mentally and in the community and in the church and need to get him a little more physical active because he's taking the cart with for golf now. But, you know, he mm-hmm. has been a major, major influence on me and all children, all sons should fear and respect their father and try to emulate them in a lot of ways. And if I could be half as good of a dad as my father was, then I think I'll have done a pretty good job. So maybe I'll even let him listen to this. Yeah, I think uh, we all kind of feel that way a bit, I hope. Tell me a little bit about what you mean by fear. and Because I think uh, you know people have a lot of different definitions of that. And I have this feeling that you're 
like what you're trying to put across is a fear of your father's a little bit different than some people might think. Like, yeah, could you I mean, it's not like my dad beat us. I mean, we were more scared of my mom and my aunt. And like my aunt had <laughs> lost use of her arms from polio. So she'd literally kick our butt like she, she oh, had wow. a wicked kick. Um, and my mom would make us go on out and cut a switch. And if it wasn't big enough, you'd have to go back and cut another one. Or my mom would just smack you with a wooden spoon. You know, she was Irish or her hand. Uh, but my dad had this big, thick leather belt that he wore. And he would take it off mm. and he'd double it over and he'd go crack. And you'd hear it echoing through the house. And you knew that when you heard that, somebody was going to get it. But like you yeah. get one swat, maybe two swats, you know, on your bottom and it hurt, but it didn't cause damage. And one thing that my father did is he connected what he was doing to what you had done. You know, you know, you shouldn't have done this. You mm. know, that is a violation of the rules or, you know, you don't disrespect little old ladies or you broke that window and, you know, now you know how much it hurts and you're going to work to pay for it. So there's this direct connection between I did something wrong. It hurt. I'm not going to do that again. So there was that sort of fear in more fear of letting them down, fear of not doing what was right, fear of, you know, bringing home a report card that was not up to snuff uh, and not up to snuff meant that you didn't do your best. So yeah. it was it. So it wasn't like, you know, we, we were afraid my dad was going to beat us or, you know, abandon us or anything like that. It was the healthy fear of violating the rules. And if you violated the rules, you knew mm. that something was going to happen for it. And so you stayed in line until you understood what the rules truly were and why they were and when you could bend them in certain situations like, oh, you're supposed to be home by nine o'clock, but you got home at nine. 15 because you were at work you know late all right that was an okay you know bending of it you know you're supposed to do your chores in the morning yeah. but you know it got delayed because you had to take your brother to school for his school trip all right those sort of things but you need to learn what the rules are and follow them before you can evolve to following the concepts that they're supposed to embody and so my parents did an incredibly good job around that Pretty clear expectations, I'd say. You knew what the outcome was going to be if you went down the wrong path, and it wasn't good. Yeah. But at least it sounds to me like your father explained to you what those outcomes were and like what, what, why you're being held. And it was consistent so too. Important. So it's not like they yeah. punished sometimes or you know not other times, or you know with us, you know they it was consistent well, for the most part across all sex kids. Yes, my sisters could get away with more stuff because you know they were daddy's little girl. <laughs> but you know the boys we all knew if you violate this rule, you know you're in trouble. So as as you got older, um, you know, I read that you were got into ultra marathon running uh, and martial arts. Which 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 of those two came first? So I started martial arts when I was actually 13 years old. So back in 1983. Uh, so it's been quite a while. That was I've that been... an influence from your aunt? What? Was, was uh, that no, that wasn't an influence from my aunt. She just, you know, kicked her, <laughs> kicked her butt, you know, naturally. She actually was an Olympic caliber swimmer before she got polio. So you talk about oh, a wow. tough person. You know, she lost the use of her arms yeah, as an like... iron lung and still ended up raising her four kids. So you talk about, and she's also the one who taught me to love Looney Tunes. So you talk about a tough, <laughs> creative, resilient human being. My Aunt Lillian was mm. the embodiment of that. So, uh, but the martial arts came about, I was like in fifth grade and uh, kids on the bus were like messing with my kid sister. And so my mom put my kid sisters in Taekwondo. And then a couple months later I joined and I ended up sticking with it. Yeah. And I've uh, been doing it ever since. You can see I've got like a couple of medals and you know, one of my certificates up there was an assistant instructor you know it's basically part of who i am because i've been doing it for so long and it became part of every aspect of my thought process and attitude and it was actually i mm. started running to cross train for taekwondo 
and I did my first marathon well, b- yeah. before my 30th birthday because I said if I don't do one by the time I turn 30, I'll never do one. After I did my second marathon, yeah. I swore I'd never do another marathon again in my life because just, you know, the training and the recovery and all that. But then I, about seven years ago, I started getting involved in what are called Ragnars, which are roughly 200-mile team relay races. So you're running 16 to 20 Whoa. miles each uh, over a day and a half period. And the rest of the time you're sitting in a van or sleeping on the floor of a school or out in the woods or whatever. And it, it's just a... Uh, exercise in pushing yourself on multiple limits and craziness that you get a little Stockholm syndrome while you're in the van too. It's sort of fun. Um, and because we had an injured runner, I'd pick up a couple extra legs. So instead of doing 16 ish miles, I'd end up doing 22 or 24. Then during COVID my running team's like, Hey, so that we don't, you know, do something stupid, let's do something crazy. And we decided to do a backyard ultra where every hour you would run one, two, or three miles. And, you know, we start and then we just keep repeating and see how long you could go. And uh, we were supposed to start at 9 a.m. And I somehow started at 5 a.m. And I was doing three miles per turn. And by the time we got to like 12 or 13 uh, trips around, I'm like, you know what? why don't I just push this to do a double marathon? Everybody else was done and I just kept doing it and doing it and doing it and ended up with 52 and a half miles. And actually that was a year ago yesterday because the pictures just popped wow. up. I'm like, wow. Um, and after completing that, I'm like, you know what? With a little bit more attention and training, I could really do this. And so then in October I did a hundred kilometer and I ended up doing that in two hours less than it took me to do the 52 miles. And I was actually training to do 125 kilometer when I messed up my ankle and broke my leg. So I'm still recovering from that. But once I'm cleared for full running, I'm planning on doing something called the hamster wheel in November, which is uh, 24 hours. And it's a four mile loop and you just go around and around and around and around for 24 hours. One of the things that really, um, that's extremely impressive. One of the things uh, that interests me, Joe, is uh, the like the level of resilience that a person develops through witness to their parents. And it sounds to me like uh, both through your mom and dad and your aunt, and uh, it sounds to me like you had a pretty resilient family. You referenced that all of them were strong in their own way. Would you say that there's any correlation between you being an ultramarathon runner? I mean, really playing the long game here, aren't you, in these, these things that you do? The fact, you know, the fact that in the martial arts world, and I want to kind of step back to that in a minute, but... In the martial arts world, you know, uh, the average lifespan of a student is if they make it to nine months, then that, we, you know, martial arts school owner considers that a success. But yeah, I mean, I actually started into- a couple of weeks before the original Karate Kid hit mo- movie theaters. And so I came to the next wow. class on that Saturday and there were a hundred new kids there, a hundred of them, because they all wanted yeah. to be, you know, like Daniel LaRusso. And so that, you know, they started training and within a month, that hundred was down to 10. And do you think, I that, think that, that your experience a with year your later, I think there were two or three left. And, and, and do you think that your uh, modeling of your mother and your father and your family and that strength that you just explained to us is, is correlated to you playing a long game through all these different things in your life, ultra marathon running, doing martial arts for, I mean, for, you know, your entire life. Yeah. Building a business, writing books, you know, everything, because the only things that have ever come easy to me was academics. I mean, I started college at 13 because my parents said 12 was too young and everything Mm. else has been a struggle, has required significant amount of work. And I got that from watching my parents. You know, you grew up on the farm and, you know, if you don't work, you don't eat. I like to eat. So we had to learn to work. And yeah. those animals <laughs> need to be taken care of every morning. I don't, as my mom said, you know, I don't care, you know, if I don't feel good, it's got to be done. And that's one of the things that she showed me with the six kids. I mean, when after she died for six months, every single day I wrote a memory. And looking back over a lot of these, a lot of them are, you know, I thank my mom for giving me the gift of suck it up and go. You know, my mom giving Mm. me the gift of it doesn't matter how late you go to sleep, you have to get up and answer the bell in the morning. So 
it was a model that I've been able to follow very well simply because I saw her live it all the way up to the point where, you know, she was dying of the cancer and she'd still get on up and attempt to do stuff. Oh, God bless her. That's amazing. Um, what with Taekwondo and staying with it for so long, I'm curious and just sort of a selfish question here. Was it the competition of Taekwondo? Was it the cultural aspect? Um, was there something, what, what made that stand out? Because a lot of martial artists, they'll go around, they'll try judo, they'll try, you know, jujitsu or karate. Like what made you stick with that art? Hey there, I want to take a quick break from this episode. I hope you're enjoying it. I want to share with you the work that we do over at Close Quarter Dad. It's a community of men who are learning how to really promote resilience, confidence, and a lifestyle of safety with their children. We have programs and courses inside the community that range from how to teach your children personal protection, loss prevention if they get lost in the woods or in a wilderness setting, and we also go over uh, abduction scenarios and what to do in those cases. It's the worst case scenario, of course, for us as dads. Um, Then we go on to um, family safety and their role in the unit of the family. And then the final quarter is on last resort training, where we talk about how to communicate and work with your children on certain catastrophe situations, um, extreme crisis situations, and some real heavy mindset stuff. Um, And how to do this at all ages, because communicating to a five-year-old little boy is a lot different than a 16-year-old little girl. I don't need to tell you that. But life comes at us in all different directions, and we want to make sure as dads that we're there and available to make sure that our children have what it takes when it counts when we're not there for them. If this sounds interesting to you, I'd love you to hop on over to Close Quarter Dad, learn about the community, and if you have any questions, I'd love you to contact me directly. I'm available for you. Um, Let's get back to the podcast. Well, I, one thing was I studied with one school was in uh, junior high and high school. And then when I went to RPI for college, um, one of my fraternity brothers joined the club there. And I was still going back to my old mm. school because my old school was 30, 40 minutes away. But um, I wasn't advancing. Um, the, there was some issues there that just didn't work out well. And so I attended one of his classes. I'm like, oh, I like this because the harder nature of it appealed to me the you know the repetition the doing it right the fact that um in this school that i joined the students were responsible for the lower rank students so red belts were, were responsible for helping make sure that the green belts knew their forms you know so they would take time and teach off to mm. the side where in my old school that had been forbidden it was you know black belts only could assist other people. Sometimes brown belts were allowed to, whereas this one, it was much more uh, free. It was more democratic in some way in that everybody had more responsibility. And so that appealed to my libertarian nature and, you know, growing up on the farm where you help the other people out, you finish your chore, you help them. And so that appealed to me very much so. So, um, and uh, that school allowed me to advance a lot, but my master, Master Grant, it was also best friends with Tomo Kadachi, who was the former uh, All Japan Judo champion. And so even though we were very hardcore in Taekwondo, uh, we had Master Kadachi come around occasionally and we would cross train with him and his team sometimes. Um, we had people who were at Grant's homeschool who were maximum correction security officers. So, yeah, there was the tournament-type aspect in some ways, but a lot of this was real world. I mean, almost every single person that I trained with who was a black belt before me was at least 30 or 40 pounds heavier than me of pure muscle. Many of them were military, ex-military, correction officer, law enforcement. So I had to learn how to punch well above my weight very, very quickly. And the challenge appealed to me. Yeah. It sounds like, uh, yeah, yeah. It sounds like a lot of the, um, 
and I'll take take a step back. I went through a uh, when I was doing some uh, working with a personal protection agency down in New Jersey, and the the specialty of that work was focused in uh, executive protection, dignitary protection work, some like kind of higher level bodyguard work. And uh, one of the gentlemen that was on the team that I was working with, this is back in the, oh, it was about 2002, it was a while ago. He was one of the, I don't remember his, his exact rank, but he, he was one of the directors of the High Altitude Mountain Warfare School for the Army. And uh, he was uh, also in that town where that school was, he owned a Taekwondo mm-hmm. school. And I thought that was interesting because as a professional martial artist, most of, I mean, all of my working life, um, you, a lot of people really equate Taekwondo as sort of like a kid's thing and, you know, the Taekwondo school in the after school yep. programs or whatever. It's a combat. It's a combat art, though. I mean, at, at its when you rip it down to the studs, it we is, still a, punch it is people a combat in the head. art. And I have known. Yeah. <laughs> That's it's it, it, it really has impressed me to see uh, a lot of the um, a lot of the people who I consider to be um, exemplary martial artists come from that uh, come from a Taekwondo background. So um, it's, it's it's really interesting to hear that. Now, you continued this through college, you just yep, said through right? college, through grad school. And in fact, yep. I started actually seriously, seriously competing in grad school and uh for the first five ten years after that uh it was when i was Mm. seriously competing and traveling all over the u.s and you know uh like uh the chung kwan international championships that i won and all that so that's when i significantly got in it because when i was an undergrad in grad school well you didn't necessarily have a lot of time no money obviously um so I was just like training the fraternity house, training on campus, doing all that. But once I started working and I worked uh, for myself, I built a financial plan career to start. So I would work incredibly hard during my time that I was working and I didn't mess around so I could have the free time for Taekwondo. So I would get up, I would train from about just before five to about six thirty, shower, shave, go to the office. Seven a.m. I was, you know, meeting my first client. I'd work from seven a.m. straight up till four thirty. Close up everything on days that I didn't have Taekwondo, and then I'd go to my Taekwondo class. After Taekwondo, I would sit there and I'd study, I'd research, I would, you know, work on my language. You know, so I'd practice the same way that I practice my martial arts techniques. I would practice my language in my uh, sales career. So it was very much the same. So other people were like, you know, working at eight o'clock at night, seeing clients and all that. I'm like, no, I have a responsibility. I have to go to Taekwondo. This is an appointment with me or my students. So between seven and five, yeah, I'd keep five or six appointments. So, and I applying the concepts of mastery from the martial arts, I became incredibly, incredibly effective at it. So one of the things is that to schedule new appointments, you'd have to pick up the phone and call people. And I hated it. I still hate it to this day. So I became a master. I became, you know, if I got somebody on the phone, I was 95% of the time getting an appointment with them. That's how good I became because I studied the language. I studied the psychology. I practiced. I kept my numbers. I, you know, made sure my mindset was correct. I did even little things like how I would position my body to get the maximum effect for the voice and to control my emotions properly to run that uh, phone call to get the results that I wanted. So as I teach young martial mm-hmm. artists to when you need to control the ring and the rhythm, and when I'm teaching salespeople or business owners, I teach them the same thing. You need to control the ring and the rhythm to control the outcome of the situation. And so the ring and the rhythm is where you're meeting, when you're meeting, the location, the agenda, things like that. Set it up so that the entire field is skewed in your favor. And so that's a direct derivative of martial arts, the success that I end up having there because, you know, I'm too stupid to give up, you know, as it might be, you know, I'm Irish, got a thick skull, uh, but I applied <laughs> the exact same concepts of mastery in martial arts 
to that business. And there's a reason why I was able to have tremendous success. It's really interesting. Uh, yeah, thank you for sharing that. I love hearing stories about how people apply, not just conceptually, but you even went into the physical about positioning your body um, just on for sales calls and, and, and how people can translate the practice of something like martial arts into things like growing your business. But I heard, I heard two other things that I want to step into. Um, the first was how you said you made it my time and my practice. I'd love to hear your perspective on many men today. A lot of men really come into or step into the family life and raising children with this feeling of we got to put the family first, we got to put the children first, then we got to you know make sure we take care of the wife, and then if there's time left over for us, uh, we, we might. And I get got to caught that. in that and trap for a long time. That, that creates. You know, I stopped competing yeah, right? for over a right. decade because. Uh, like my, my middle son, when he was born, he actually was born, uh, his spine was twisted. And so he was in physical and occupational therapy every single day for the first six mm. months of his life. And then it petered off from that, but I mean, that affected work and everything else. And so I stopped training for multiple years to take care of him and be able to uh, do that stuff. And then with special, my son having special needs, you know, that's a whole another level of attention. But luckily I found another Taekwondo instructor who was teaching in the school and I watched him teach the middle kids and the older kids and saw how he interacted. And I signed my youngest up to train under him. And so I went in and talked with Master Tories about my youngest special needs, his ADHD and autism. And he said they had background. And so I watched every single class for a couple of years. And then it was at, you know, while I was there um, observing, uh, Master Torres is like, you know what you're doing. And so we struck up a good friendship from it. So he found yeah, you out. He found huh? me out. <laughs> and, and so, you know, he's like, you know, give tips, go ahead, you know, interact with my students, whatever you want. So, uh, and even though my son's no longer training with him, we still have a very good friendship. In fact, I quote him uh, in the book at one point because something that he said to my youngest, um, and he uses when his students are doing some practice, is a concept that applies very well into the business world. So I, I told him I stole it, and I, you know, I put it in the book. I gave him a copy of the book, and he, he attended the premiere, so that was actually really cool because he and my father sat there talking for about two hours because he wanted to meet my father. So, now you say you fell into the family the trap. first. Could we step is, into that a little bit? Yes, sir. Yeah. Oh no, you you actually were just going right into what I was asking about. You had mentioned the um, falling into the trap, and I was wondering if you we could define that a little bit more because I completely agree with you here. So, when my middle one was uh, after he was born, and he had that six months of he needed the intense uh, physical and occupational therapy and then started peering out. I also had a major career shift at that point. So I did not have the uh, structure that I had previously built. I didn't have the revenue that I built. So I was struggling in a lot of ways. So I was doing whatever it took. And my ex-wife mm. started traveling at that point. So she was on the road four days a week, three weeks out of the month. And so it was up to me to get the kids up, get them off to school and all that, get them home from school, dinner, supervise, get them to whatever things. So I moved into full-time chauffeur. By the time my middle one or my youngest one was around, I was literally taking the kids to three different activities every single day at three different places, six days a week, plus Taking care, making sure the house was running, plus feeding them, plus uh, my work, plus trying to take care of me, you know, mentally, physically, and emotionally. So my training petered out in a big way. I was still doing stuff. I mean, that's when I I started uh, doing Ragnar's a couple of years after my youngest was born. 
Um, you know, I, I was still doing Taekwondo, not to the extent that I was, but I was getting in a half hour, 40 minutes a day, as opposed to the two hours a day that I had previously. But I got to the point where how did I that, realized- How did that I type of schedule work for you? Oh, I'd get up at 5 a.m. Uh, I would train from or do school work from 5 to 5.30. That's when my youngest would get up because he mm. was like me in a lot of ways, uh, getting up early. Then at 6.30 to 7, I'd have to get the older two up and out the door. Hopefully they didn't miss the bus so I wouldn't have to drive them. Uh, then I would uh, be doing stuff with the youngest one food prep, things like that, cleaning the kitchen so that I could multitask with him, get him on the bus at 8.32, some days 8.38, and then I could work from then until uh, 2.30 when I had to start being ready to be home for him. So he'd get home at 3.15. I get him home, get him situated, make sure he does homework, fed, all that, uh, and, th and then I would have to start running around playing chauffeur around 4.30 uh, till about 8.30 typically, actually 9 because the oldest had uh, robotics. So 8.30 or 9, and that included uh, dinner, supervising homework, cleaning stuff up and all that. Um, then after I got the youngest to bed, I would be able to uh, train for about half hour, and then I would be back into work mode until 11 or 12 o'clock at night, go to bed and repeat. And when did Joe hit the wall with that schedule? Because that's a superhuman schedule and it can, you can only go, I'm, you might be different, you might be the exception, but that's gotta be a really hard thing to keep up. Would you agree? It, it was. You gotta, it's, you, you got, it's gotta cut out of your life somewhere. I, I kept it up for, years i mean uh basically yeah. it ended up coming crashing down three months into covid when my ex-wife had a nervous breakdown so it wasn't me that uh had the issue it was you know on the other side um and it was mainly mm -hmm. because uh we didn't have the outlets for taekwondo and scouts and all that which uh, helped with the kids and we had all of us right there in the same place all the time and she didn't realize you know how much difficulty a uh, special needs kid is a special needs teenager and you know my middle one who's the normal one uh, is just off the chart energy wise and they're all incredibly intelligent and so she could not handle what it took having all of us going on in the same physical space and so she had an issue about three months in and mm. that's ultimately what culminated in the divorce mm. i'm sorry to hear that but I, yeah um i'd like to really uh, kind of pivot and talk uh kind of step into a lifelong martial artist self-made person comes from a very strong family, a lot of resilience in that story. Um, and I'd like to talk about parenting and your witness to that and what safety means uh, with your experience in martial arts, but also someone who's seen the world. But before I do that, that other thing that I heard, and you really glazed over this, Joe, and I just kind of need to uh, sort of acknowledge it, but you just you just skimmed right over the fact that you have an inter, a first place international championship in taekwondo. Did I hear that correctly? Yeah. Or first place national championship? International, yeah. <laughs> it's, it, it's impressive. I just I did, you know that wasn't part of the intro. It wasn't anything. Just you know, just like a a, a, a humble martial artist. It's, it's like yeah, yeah. I have it's, that, it's, it's a not, trophy. I don't even know where it story. is anymore. <laughs> it got lost in one of the moves. But it was the process Excellent. of becoming a champion that's important. As one of a, yeah. one of my sayings that's is, right. I wear my black belt on my soul, as opposed to my waist. Mm. And that's the important thing. If you become a CFP, it's going through the process of becoming the, cer the certified financial planner. That's important, you know, and that can't be taken away. If you go through the process of writing your PhD dissertation, defending it, and being awarded your PhD, they can't take that away from you. If you go through the process of becoming a great father, that is something that the 
process and the experience and the memories can't be taken from you. Same thing with, you know, the championship or anything else. So it is having those things that are non-tangible, but change you dramatically for the future. Those are the areas that we should invest our time and effort towards. Not getting, you know, a flashier car or, you know, cooler clothes or the you know the big trip yeah the trip's nice occasionally to go see something new and exciting if you can turn it into a learning experience but all too often people are focused on these external gratifications and you know these accolades and all that whereas it's what are you doing so that you can become more that is the important choice and lesson Wise, wise. Um, let's let's pivot into parenting, Joe. Um, and you know, you had mentioned that you're a father of a special needs child. Um, would you care to share with us a little bit about what the you know what your child's condition is and how that has um, how, how how that's formed you as a father and what some of the unique concerns centered around safety. Um, around maybe their confidence and how they step into life uh, might be? So my youngest is both ADHD and autistic. In fact, I'm on the board of the local autism society because of things that I was experiencing, trying to make sure that he was getting the attention and education and support he needed within the school system and learning about what Mm. would take for him as a non-neuronormal to be able to have success. I've got some friends scattered across the country who have autistic or even severely autistic kids who have been a very good support network because not every day is good. That's one of the things that you learn as a special needs parent. It doesn't matter if it's a special need like uh, mental needs like my children, if your kid has a pediatric cancer like my one friend, Uh, her kid, or if they're like, you know, diabetic as another one of my friends, there's certain obstacles in terms of the kid's development. And so you need to understand them and one, change your world so that you're positioned to give them what they need. So, you know, taking the time away from my training so that I could give the attention to him because he's not, he didn't learn how to process emotions and social cues and all that like a typical autistic kid so he needs additional support in that um i became heavily involved in cub scouts and actually became the pack master when everything was closing down because the old pack master retired during covid just to make sure that he would have that support structure there to continue with so not every day is a good day, but we try and get the best that we can out of it. Uh, it forced me to study stoicism a lot more because, you know, with the older kids, you know, they're much more mature. They're more mature than their age for the most part, and they're resilient. And so uh, my youngest, my middle one's actually very sarcastic, like I can be at times. He's sort of my mini-me, so he we used to call him Captain Independence. At three years old, he was basically, you know, taking care of himself. So the having the youngest one changed the dynamic tremendously and it forced me to study stoicism so that I could have an even greater control over my emotions because, you know, I'm pretty passionate in everything that I do. Uh, I'm Irish, so there is that. Uh, and so being able to, if they spilled the milk, take a deep breath and not get angry, even though I literally just warned him about doing something so that it wouldn't have happened. It's changing the language. It's learning to pre-plan in a lot more ways. Okay. Uh, So one of the things that I've taught my kid is the what if game. Okay. You want to go to uh, Mm. this restaurant for your birthday. What if they are closed? What's our backup? What can we do to make sure that that you don't have meltdown? Okay, if we go there and they don't have the nachos that you want, you know, what's the backup plan? And so allowing him to be able to pre-plan it on some of these ways, it helps reduce the anxiety. And if something doesn't go exactly to the script that's running in his head, it allows us to have a little bit more flexibility as opposed to that 
utter shutdown meltdowns that we had when he was younger and first starting to learn this. So I've been able to apply that concept to my business. I'm teaching clients that I work with about it because it makes them better strategic thinkers for their businesses. But it's allowing my youngest to have a little bit more control. So even if things are not going according to plan, he can figure out a new plan or fall back to the plans they already has. And so this develops more resilience for them. And by having to deal with their younger brother who has these issues, the older two are seeing this and learning this also. And hopefully they learn a little bit more mm. patience because, you know, teenage boys are not exactly known for patience. <laughs> I, I love that. What if game? Uh, how do they, how, how have they responded to that? Are you finding obviously it's pretty successful? You're using it in your own business, but give me an example of what one of the one what a response might look like. So uh, here's actually an example from my friend Jason, who did this with his son, who's a little bit more uh, difficult than my youngest. But they were going on a, a flight, and so they went over with his son. Okay, so we're going to leave at this time so we can get to the airport, you know, with, within this time. And we left extra time in case something happens so that if there is a car accident, if there's uh, delays, we still get there with enough time so that we're going to be okay. And once we're there, we're going to have to go through the check-in process and go through uh, – uh, TSA, and they actually brought the son mm. to the airport to watch that process a couple of times so that he could understand the standing in line, which was difficult for him, and all that. And so they exposed him a little bit to it beforehand and explained what was going to happen. And they had plans of, okay, now if we don't get, if there's a, we're flying from here to here. And then we have to catch another plane. Now, what happens if that second plane we can't catch because of weather delays or all these? So they went through a lot of the alternatives with them. And uh, on one of the flights, I guess, actually, there was a delay or something. And so he was able to, instead of having the meltdown of, okay, we're not reaching our destination, you know, at the time that we thought because autistic kids in a lot of ways tend to be very literal. And so this is what's going to happen and deviation messes them up. So having mm. him understand if this happens, we have a plan and making him aware of the plan made it go a lot smoother. I like that. That's wonderful. Another um, thing that yeah, as, I've as learned you're... from my kid. No, go ahead. Ab. Yeah, please go ahead. I think there's a delay in, in my microphone, but I'd like to hear that other thing. So another thing that I've learned with my son is uh, we literally have a reset button that we use. And if he gets up in the morning and he's getting up on the wrong side of the bed and things are not going well, I literally tell him, all right, buddy, we're going to hit the reset button. And I hit the button with him. We go back up to his room. He takes off his glasses and his shoes. He climbs back into his bed. I uh, tuck him in. I tuck him in real tight because very often autistic kids, because of their sensory issues, like to be have that tightness, that swaddling, or like the uh, extra heavy blanket mm -hmm. type thing. I literally put him back to bed, turn the light off, and say, night, see you in the morning. I walk out, and I come back in a few minutes. I turn the light on and I wake him up all over again. So we've literally reset the day and whatever happened earlier, wow. I have, uh, you know, basically expunged it and hopefully he's starting from a brand new day in a good position. And more often than not, it resets to a good day. So this is something that I've done with him. I wrote that it's down. Like, how do we reset our day as big people? You know, if we're having a crappy morning yeah. because we had a flat tire, we spilled coffee all over ourselves, we're running late, our first appointment doesn't show up, and, you know, just all sorts of unexpected stuff, we could easily spiral out of control. 
Or how do we say, all right, I'm hitting the reset button and mentally reset so that from that point forward, we are operating with a blank slate instead of with a whole bunch of debits. It's good. I wrote both of those down, the what if and the uh, reset button. I like both of those tools. Thank you for sharing that. Um, as a parent and as a fighter and as, uh, as I already said, someone who's really built themselves up, what are, some of the, what are some of the deepest concerns that you have as a, let's just say as a parent uh, of special needs or as a parent as, whole, as a whole? And uh, how are you able to have agency over some of those fears uh, given your life experience? Well, I actually have a quote on my board from Goethe that says, two marrying parents make life hard for their children by trying too zealously to make it easy for them. And so Roger that my kids know that even though I could give them almost everything, I'm not going to. And yeah. privileges need to be earned and I will take them away. So like my one kid did some stupid stuff. And so I gave him 200 hours of community service work and I made him go and scrub woodwork with a toothbrush. And when they are messing around too much, I take their phones and they know if I say I'm going to do something, I'm going to follow through. So you if through. you threaten, you yeah. need to follow through with that punishment. Uh, I've seen too many parents, yeah. including members of my own family, make threats and their idle threats and the kids figure that out really quickly. My yeah. kids know I don't yeah, threaten. Sure. I make a promise yeah. with negative consequences and it's going to happen. Yeah. The other thing is that um, as Ryan Holiday's one book is called The Obstacle is the Way, we need to make our Love kids Great resilient. Book. So like when I was yeah. growing up, my mom used to kick us outside and say, all right, you know, I don't want to see you until lunchtime and then I don't want to see you until dark. And so we had to go and figure it out. So we, I do that with my kids in a lot of ways. And my kids joke that I am the worst father ever because I taught them to say that. Um, and I'm the worst scout leader too. And all my kids say that even the ones who are, you know, are getting ready to get their Eagle Scout and left my uh, pack five years ago. They still say it because I taught them to say that so I could trip over the bar, but also because they know I'm going to tell them, no, I'm not going to make it easy for them. Muscles grow because of resistance. Our resilient capacity grows because of resistance. Master Grant used to take us downstairs into the dungeon and it, we would train so hard that in August it would actually rain in the dojang. That was awesome. You thought you were going to die. He'd redline us and just keep us there. But that's how you get more resilient. That's how you get better. That's how you get stronger. I mean, I was able to have an amazing amount of endurance because I would just push that hard and then recover. And every time you do that, you become more than what you were. And that is one of the concepts behind excellence and in my book is that constant striving for improvement, that human Kaizen approach to things. So making things a little bit more difficult for the kids, but also giving them rewards based on their responsibilities is one of the ways to develop independent young men and women. And unfortunately, we are still coddling them and bubble wrapping them and snow plowing for them all the way into and through college. And that's not a good thing because then you end up with 46 year old princesses who don't know what to do. <laughs> that's right yeah yeah you had uh mentioned when uh when you early when you first became a father of a special needs child you had referenced that you needed to kind of learn about stoicism and it, and it popped in my head holiday's book the obstacle is the way um i had actually listened to that i had i read i bought a copy of it afterwards but I did a, a solo bike trip across Newfoundland in 2019 uh, in the winter, and I listened to that book, and it was a really moving book, so I can see why you say that. Yeah. It was something else. It was a, a really good book. Um, 
so you just talked about your own book here. I'd like to pivot into that. And uh, can you share with us a little bit about that book, what it's about, what motivated you to write it, and uh, maybe even how we can get our hands on it? So the book is called Everyday Excellence, A Daily Guide to Growing. And I call it a multivitamin for life. Because we have, all have different parameters mm. of our life. We have our occupation. We have our relationships. We have our physical health. We have our mental health. We have communication. We have our nutrition. These are all components that lead into the totality of our well-being. And as Xenocytium said, um, well-being is no small thing, but it's made up of small steps. And Ryan Halliday actually influenced this a lot because I was reading The Daily Stoic uh, last year. I was listening to Jocko Willink and Blastness and Black Sabbath, and it suddenly hit me. You know, excellence is a habit. Habits need to be executed every day. And I put down the kettlebell, ran upstairs, and uh, brain dumped out the concept and the structure for the book. So... What the book is, is every single day there's a quote from somebody, whether it is uh, Bruce Lee, whether it's my master Grant, you know, Jimi Hendrix, Rosa Parks, all these different sources. Then there's discussion and analysis around that. And the discussion and analysis in many ways is sort of like the Oracle of Delphi in that the reader is going to take from that what they need or they are looking for, particularly that day. But one of the big things that a lot of the other daily readers are just theoretical. They talk about stuff, but there's no implementation. So every day within Everyday Excellence, there is an action item, something small or sometimes not quite so small and easy that you need to do to take the concept of that day and translate it into real world reality impacting yourself and changing your behavior for that day and hopefully going forward. So some of them might be very little, like smiling at five people that day. And it might seem like a stupid little thing, but when you smile, it reduces the cortisol in your system. That's the main stress hormone. So you reduce the inflammation. It, cortisol reduces your testosterone. When you smile, if you're smiling at somebody else, you actually activate the mirror neurons in them. So you're smiling, so you increase your dopamine. You actually become slightly more intelligent and productive for the next five to ten minutes afterwards, as Chris Voss talks about in um, Never Split the Dif Difference. And that person now has the gift of happiness for a couple of minutes. If you do it five times throughout the day, you're going to create these little ripples in the universe that might come rebounding back to you. So that's a one example of something that seems so little, so trivial, but the impact on the individual and others is pretty tremendous. And so every single day has something like that, that there's a couple of more difficult ones throughout the book, like writing down all the reasons why you're upset with somebody and crossing them off and one by one, I forgive you for this, I forgive you for that. That one's a little bit more difficult or doing the one thing that you fear the most that day, that takes a little bit more guts. But when you're consistently doing things that improve you, as we know it from being martial artists or practicing an instrument or learning any skill or language, if you're consistently working at it, then you're going to have a slight improvement in that consistent little improvements over an extended period of time is the difference between a beginner and a master. Mm, that's right. That's right. That's right. Um, so, Joe, this brings us up to the end of the hour. I was wondering, um, the last question I have is, uh, if you could leave uh, a one actionable item in your experience, and it could be anything, uh, for a father who's listening to this, uh, and they don't have to be a father of special needs, but I think you have it, uh, you and the community of men out there that do have special needs children, have a unique uh, lens to parenting. But if there's one 
one action you've you've shared a number of of them with us. You know the the what if and the reset. I'm taking notes over here, by the way. The reset button. Um, I also added in this toolbox that we're gonna uh, you know with these to- these tools that we're gonna be adding to our own toolbox that you've shared with us is the actual the chemical reason to smile. I think that's really important to explain to our children. But if there's one thing that you'd like to share with us that's been most helpful for you, one actionable item that someone that a man could put into their life, into their family, into their child today, what would it be? The one thing I really think that is the difference between having an average existence and an awesome life is realizing that in every situation, in every decision that we make, remember, we make somewhere between 10 and 15,000 micro decisions every day. In every decision, you can basically classify the choices into two groups. There's the easy choice, tends to feel better in the moment. You know, it might be eating the donut. I love donuts, so um, it might be playing video games <laughs> instead of studying. It might be staying in bed instead of getting up and training. Yeah. It might be, you know, hitting on the that person when you're already in a relationship just because it feels good to do that in the moment. So you get these, you know, entire group of choices that feel good in the moment. They're easy, but what they do is they lead to the wrong path they lead your arrow down essentially. And if you make those choices, things are going to become harder and harder over time. You're going to develop diabetes. You're going to fail your tests. And so you're not going to get the good job. You're, you know, you're going to screw up your relationship by not having the difficult conversations when you need to. So if it's easy and really feels good in the moment, it's probably not the right choice overall. And then the other group of choices are the hard path but the hard path tends to be the better output you know that's getting up and training that is eating the healthy food instead of the junk food that is you know not hanging out with your friend who is a bad influence might be fun but it's bad influence and then the cops show up and it's not good so choosing the more difficult path consistently is a little bit lonelier it's not as much fun short term, but it opens up a much better future for you and is the road to excellence as opposed to the path to hell. That's excellent. Thank you for sharing that. I'm going to have all of your contact information um, and how to uh, get, get a copy of the book. Uh, but is there any place that you'd like us to really uh, focus on well, what work you have going on right now, anything you're involved in, uh, ways to connect with you uh, that you'd like the audience to really uh, discover? Um, they can follow me on Twitter and Facebook. That's at EDE with Joe. That's at EDE for Everyday Excellence with Joe. But the best place is to go to the website, everyday excellence. And the reason why is five or six days a week, I put up a micro blog, takes one or two minutes to read, Mm. but it gives you that quick hit. It's like, you know, the shot of espresso in the morning to get your day going and wake you up every, you know, almost every single day, there's new information there. They can buy the book there if they want, they can find all the podcasts. So this one they'll be able to find and listen to there, but it gives them consistent additional free resources to help develop themselves and it is the searching for and finding those resources that continuously expand your mind and your vision and your internal strength that really is going to lead you to the ultimate championship that you're looking for that's wonderful. Thanks, Joe. Um, you know, before we end here, I just want to take a moment and acknowledge you. Thank you for all the work that you're doing, um, all the excellence that you're bringing into the world, not just through your work, but also uh, through your leadership uh, as a businessman, as a warrior and martial artist, and also uh, as a dad. Um, it's uh, been a privilege to speak to you and have you here on the podcast and uh, hope we're able to talk again. 
Adam, thank you. I'm looking forward to another conversation. The pleasure's been mine. Be excellent and grow today. I want to thank you for spending time with us on this episode today. It's truly appreciated. I hope you got some value from it. If you want to go ahead and leave any comments or questions, reach out to me directly. I personally answer all of the questions that you have. If you know someone like yourself who may find value in this episode, then please go ahead and share it. We'd also like to ask you to subscribe to Close Quarter Dad. This way you get updated every time a new episode comes out wherever you're listening to this episode. Thank you so much once again, and we'll see you on the next episode of Close Quarter Dad.